Give me a question for you. What's the only thing better than one preacher named Walker? Come on. Two preachers named Walker. How about that? Today, we have something special for you today. Pastor Mel and I are going to tag team the lesson today from 1 Peter chapter 5. You'll learn a little bit in a, in a little bit why we're doing such a thing, but uh, this is a privilege of mine to preach with my dad uh, here at Wyoming Valley Church, so we ask that the Lord would bless this today. If you have your Bibles, join us in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I want you to remember the theme that we've been having through the book of 1 Peter. Does someone want to shout it out? It's been a couple weeks, but hopefully you remember. What is the theme of our book, Study Through 1 Peter? Fighting as Victors. So we probably have two more lessons through the book of 1 Peter this one and the next one, but we're going to look at verses 1 to 7 this morning. We had Easter last service, but if you remember two weeks ago, we came out of Pastor Mel's lesson called Suffering So That God Is Glorified. And you have to remember through any book in the Bible, there aren't chapter divisions when these were written. There weren't any verses or chapters, so this is one long letter. So we do need to remember what Peter has said in order to understand what he's about to say this morning. But the lesson for today is going to be called A Proper Church a proper church, and we're going to read the first seven verses. So I ask you to look at the Word of God with me and listen to the Word of God as I read verses 1 to 7 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the word we're going to look at this morning. May the Lord bless the teaching of his word. I have a question for you. Did you ever do something in an improper way? Did you ever do something in an improper way? Generally, when I speak, I share a story from my past. But because both Pastor Mel and I are speaking, I had to come up with a story from both of our pasts. Careful. So, <laughs> we'll see. Not that far. Uh, Pastor Mel and I are, are good at a few things, but we're also bad at a few things. There's a few things that both Dad and I, Pastor Mel and I, are, are bad at, and it just, it just runs in the blood, runs in the DNA. Here's a few things. Uh, fixing cars. We don't have a flying clue about cars. We just don't. We don't know anything. So, when a car breaks down, we have to take it to the mechanic, and we, the, the mechanic knows. They could see us coming a mile away. They know they, they can charge us $400 for an oil, oil change because we don't know what we're doing. So both Dad and I, we don't go near cars. If there's a problem, we take it to a mechanic uh, just because we really have no knowledge with fixing cars. Another thing that we don't have knowledge about is musical ability. I am so thankful we have a good band here at Wyoming Valley Church because if I had to do anything, yes, Thank you for this band, because if Pastor Mel and I had to do anything musical, it'd be over. It would be over. <laughs> we have no musical ability. Now, it does shock me that in the past, you did have a clarinet somehow? My, my grandma bought me a clarinet. A clarinet. So, probably sounded like a goose dying. <laughs> but Pastor Mel and I have no musical ability whatsoever. We also don't cook. Now, Pastor Mel, you can make a few things. You can make goulash, and you can, he can use the microwave. I can't, too. But generally, we let our wives cook because we really don't know what we're doing in the kitchen as well. So with things like that that we know we're not good at, we generally let other people do it for us. But there are a few things that we're also not good at that we had to learn that we're not good at. The other day, we tried to fix something. The TV next to the cafe, I don't know if you realized, for a couple weeks was, was missing. It wasn't working. So we had to fix that. So Pastor Mel and I thought we could do this. You know, the TV wasn't working. So what we had to do, the TV was actually busted. We had to remove it and we had to replace it with the one that was in the nursery. And all we had to do was put the plug in, hang the TV up where the other one was, and we're good to go. Right? How simple. Now, I will say this. The TV does work and we got it hanging up there. But something happened while we were doing that. 
Uh, unknowing, unbeknownst to us, we actually hurt ourselves while hanging that TV. Dad and I, for some reason, some way, injured the exact same muscle in our neck. About, what, 24 to 48 hours later, we are basically, can't move our head. <laughs> both of us, both of us. He had to go to the chiropractor, I had to get muscle relaxers. And we looked at each other and said, let's not do that anymore. What are we doing? There's got to be someone better in the church who can handle such a thing. Because uh, we both got hurt doing that. So we had to learn not to do things like that. Um, we also tried to put a TV stand together one day. Which, again, doesn't sound that hard. I mean, you just follow the instructions, put it together. You know, A goes with B and so on and so forth. But uh, I won't share a lot of details about putting that TV stand together. It was for my mom for Christmas. We wanted to get her a new TV stand for her TV. And just you wanted it, wanted it to look according to the living room. So we got this TV stand, and we tried to put it together. And long story short, there was a head injury, and there, <laughs> and there was a pair of split pants. <laughs> Now, the TV stand did come together. It is still holding, I believe, but uh, Pastor Mel and I do not have skills that way either. And there's one last thing that Pastor Mel and I are not good at that for a long time we didn't know we weren't good at, and it's golf. <laughs> golf. Dad and I and my brother and my sister all liked to golf when we grew up, so we went golfing a few times a year, and we knew we weren't great golfers. We implemented this thing called walker rules. I think I've told you that before, that when we go golfing, we play this version of golf that we call walker rules. And in walker rules, if you hit a shot that you don't like, you just hit it again. And you don't count the stroke. So walker rules golf was a lot more fun because it's not actually golf. But when we played walker rules golf, we felt like we were decent golfers. So we'd look at the scorecard at the end of the day and go, hey, not bad, Dad, a 36. On nine holes, not bad. Yeah, that was only three over par. <laughs> not realizing that we had cheated the entire day. But most people, when they go golfing, they have stories of their first hole-in-one or when they birdied two holes or something like that. When Dad and I go golfing, we have stories like when Travis ran over Dad with the golf cart. He did. <laughs> yes, actually, you, got, you were airborne, weren't you? <laughs> so Trav ran over Dad with the golf cart. One more story. We went, to this, we went to this course called Nine Flags. And I know that kind of sounds like an amusement park, but it's not. <laughs> it's basically nine holes in a field. And it was a very cheap course. I think it was like $5 for all of us to golf. And uh, we knew we were bad at golf. We weren't good golfers. But we went to this place called Nine Flags. And we were implementing walker rules, so it was going to be a great day. But we get to the third hole. And you've never seen this course, but this course is really next right next to some wooded area, which is, which is fine. It makes it for a pretty course, but it also makes it problematic if you have any hook in your ball at all when you hit it. And so on the third, on the third tee, Dad got up and he hit this shot, and you actually hit it pretty hard. But it took an immediate left into the woods, an immediate left. And it hit something hard. It hit something really hard. In fact, it hit like four or five things really hard because we kept hearing this like ricochet sound. And all of a sudden, the ball pops back out onto the fairway. And I look at my dad, and he's like, when you got it, you got it. But that's not the strange part of the story. We kind of high-fived, and you know things were going well on that hole. I can't really explain the rest of the story, but I'm going to try. Something came out of the woods. I think it was a little boy, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, because this, this thing came out of the woods running at us. And there is my dad and my brother and I standing there watching this thing emerge from the woods, running and shouting at us as if we hit his loved one or something like that. And maybe you did with your shot, I don't know. But this, this kid, this boy, comes running out. He has long, magey hair. He's dressed very strange. And he comes out and comes right before us. And we didn't know what was going to happen. So dad had just hit his shot. He has his golf club in his hand. And at this point, I think it was raised, just in case you had to defend yourself. But this boy comes and he stops right in front of us and he yells and he runs back into the woods. And I'm like, what was that? And from, from now on, we've called the story Wolf Boy. Uh, Wolf Boy came out of the woods. I think if we had to guess, we either hit him with a golf ball or we hit someone he loves. But that's the kind of thing that happens when dad and I go golfing, you know? 
not normal things, weird things. So we have to realize that we were bad golfers. And I think the last time you went golfing, correct me if I'm wrong, was the year I was married. Was the was the your wedding? That was the last time I. Two thousand and nine. That was that. Dad and I had to hang up our golf clubs. I actually got rid of my golf clubs. Me too. I got. Rid I of haven't golf. gone golfing since, and that's that's a good thing because we are not very good at golf. Anyways, I tell that story to share with you that there is something. There's a proper way to do something, isn't there? There's a proper way to do it, and there's an improper way to do something. We're going to title our lesson today in a proper church, because that's really what Peter has for us here in chapter 5, is he's going to share with us how to have, how to lead a proper church. And the reason both Pastor Mel and I are speaking to you today is because most of the exhortation here at 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 5, 1 to 7, is to pastors. And he uses the term elder, but we're going to talk about that term. That term can also mean pastors. So we're going to follow a very simple outline today. I'm going to speak to you about verse 1. Pastor Mel and I are then going to share a brief testimony about ourselves so you can learn a little bit more about your pastors. Then I'm going to share, actually Pastor Mel is going to share about verses 2 to 4, and then when he's done I'm going to share about verses 5 to 7. So that's the outline we're going to follow today. So I want you to again look at verse 1 here in chapter 5. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. He uses this word called exhort. And exhort isn't a word we often use. I don't think you do. I definitely don't use the word exhort. I don't say to my children, Titus, I exhort you to clean your room. Haddon, I exhort you to not hit your sister. But exhort is a word, is a word that you, it means this. It means to charge. It can mean to strongly encourage. It can mean to press forward. It can also mean warn. So Peter is saying today, I exhort you elders. I charge you. I strongly encourage you. I press you forward. I even warn you to do something. And this word elder is not a term we use a lot either. If you understand the word elder, generally we use it for people who are just up in their age, right? People who are just older. We use the word elders sometimes. An elder can mean that. It can mean somewhat of advanced age. But I don't think that's what Peter is referring to when he says elder. Elder, when you look into the scriptures, can also mean shepherd, where we would use the term pastor. The term pastor that we use today actually translates into the word shepherd. It can also mean this word overseer. And overseer sounds like just exactly like what it is. Someone who looks over something. And really, the idea of shepherd works for that as well, because shepherds look over their sheep. Well, pastors look over their flock. They look over their church members. And that's exactly what Peter says when he says, I exhort the elders among you. And we want to be very clear here. I think most of you probably know this, but Wyoming Valley Church has two pastors, myself and Pastor Mill. We have three deacons. But I don't think this passage is speaking to deacons. I think deacons is an entirely different role. I think the charge and the exhortation today is for people like Pastor Mel and myself. People who are in a pastor role. People who have been called and qualified by God to look over the church. To guide the church. To lead the church in a proper way. So most of the exhortation here in chapter 5, the first part, is to Pastor Mel and myself. And so Peter's going to exhort us toward something. Every single week, Pastor Mel and I get up and we exhort you all towards progression in Christ-likeness, maturity in Christ. But this week, Pastor Mel and myself are going to be the ones who are exhorted. We're going to be exhorted towards being proper pastors, to do it the proper way, not like we do when we try to fix things or when we try to go golfing, but to do our pastorship the proper way. And Peter says, as a fellow elder and witness, the apostle Peter was also an elder. So he's speaking as an elder to other elders. But the thing about Peter is he actually had a higher call than even a general elder because he was an apostle. Peter was a specially called and qualified man. He was given supernatural power by the Lord to heal people, to speak powerfully, to advance the gospel among the nations. But he says in the passage that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he's also a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. 
Peter's going to give us elders instruction today, but he's going to say something. I was there. I was there when Jesus suffered and died. I was there. I saw it. I witnessed it. I was also there on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord was in his glory. Peter was there. Peter was one of the three that got to witness Jesus coming into his glory in the Transfiguration. And Peter's going to say, I'm a fellow elder, but I also am a first-hand witness of Christ. I saw his testimony. I saw his life. I saw his teachings. I experienced his miracles. When he suffered, I was there. In fact, I often suffered with him. When Jesus was glorified on the mount in the transfiguration, I was there. I saw it. So the exhortation and the warning and the encouragement today to other elders is going to make a mark if we listen. Because Peter knows what he's talking about. So Peter's going to give us instruction today. And he's not going to give out any sort of instruction that he himself was unwilling or unable to perform. So whatever Peter is going to give out to Pastor Mel and myself is something that he too was held to. And he's going to exhort us as Jesus exhorted him. No more, no less. So the exhortation that we're going to get today is exactly what Jesus wants us to know as pastors and shepherds of his church. So that's verse number one. Peter wants to know what he's doing, where he's coming from, and what he's going to do in these next few verses. The next thing we want to do is we want to share a little bit of a testimony of ourselves. And I know you've heard bits and pieces about Pastor Mel and I's story, but I think hearing them one right after the other will help you understand your pastors a little bit more. So I'm actually going to defer to Pastor Mel let him go first and give you a little bit of a testimony, then I'm going to do the same. So. Folks, i got to tell you that um, when my son told me this week that uh, he was going to get up and tell uh, things that we're not good at, I figured we could be, we could be here all day. And, and first of all, I mean, I understand that, but also he's my son is uh, telling you what I'm not good at. And so that's, always, that's a little scary. So I admit that I was pretty nervous thinking through what he was going to say. What is dad not good at? And there's a lot of them. Uh, I am not ever going to let Peggy do that. Um, uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of them. Um, yeah, the, the instruction uh, in, in 1 Peter 5 about a proper church includes obviously elders or pastors, and we want to talk about that. And I know that I've had the opportunity to share with you my story, my testimony a little bit, and so you've heard this when, when I started my ministry almost a couple of years ago now. But uh, I, I came to Christ um, at an early age. I, I thank God for my family. Honestly, Christy has done, our daughter has done some of the genealogy thing, the Ancestry.com. And in my family, the Walker side of the family, even my mom's side of the family, as far back as we know. And this goes back to the 1700s. That 1700s in the United States, my family's been believers. And I thank God for that legacy in my family. A little Marcus is here today, and uh, that, that means a lot to me. My parents told me that I was in church the first Sunday I was ever alive. I don't remember that, but my parents were not ministry people, but they believed in the church. We were the kind of family that everything the church did, we did, and there was no, I've told young people this all the time, I mean, there was no, when I was a kid, there was no ever missing church for, uh, for work, for homework, for anything. We went to church. We were that family. And so I, I uh, was in church my early life, and I came to Christ when I was five years old. Child Evangelism Fellowship in Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. The missionary, I think, I was five, but I think if I remember right, I was too young to officially go. But we're talking about Mon downtown Montrose. So I tagged along with my older brother and went to Good News Club at Child Evangelism Fellowship. The lesson that's, that evening, I think it was a Tuesday night, even though I was five, I think it was a Tuesday night, and the lesson was on John 3.16. Maybe the lesson every week was on John 3.16, I don't know. But that day, God used His Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that Jesus died on the cross for me. I knew that I was a sinner, and that day I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, I did not grow up, like especially during my high school years, um, 
making that a top priority. But looking back, I think God keeps his word, and I'm thankful for my life uh, starting uh, in a godly, God-honoring way with my parents. And I thank, you, I thank God for that kind of background. Um, so growing up, I was a typical church kid, uh, except that uh, growing up uh, as a teenager, a lot of people go through this, living for myself, living for my priorities. I, I have told you this story already. I, basketball was a big deal in Montrose when I was growing up, and I tried out for the basketball team in seventh grade and got cut. I tried out for the basketball team in eighth grade and got cut. I tried out for the basketball team in ninth grade and got cut. And you would think I would learn the lesson, except that next summer something amazing happened in my life, and that is my mom kept track in our baby book how tall my brothers and I were. The last day of school in ninth grade, I was 5'10", 5'10", which is pretty tall for a ninth grader, but the first day of school in 10th grade, I was 6'4". I grew six inches that summer. There, uh, there were a lot of floods that summer. Uh, I invented capri pants. I invented it uh, because I grew six inches in one summer. I came back to school, and my friends are always like, well, Mel, what happened to you? I'm <laughs> cornflakes. And uh, uh, I, all of a sudden, the varsity basketball coach started talking to me. And I'm like, I got cut three years. Well, that started where basketball became my identity. Basketball became my, my life and who I was. And I, play, I think I went the next five years of my life uh, playing basketball, and uh, that became an identity I wanted and had opportunities to go to basketball scholarships and big schools. And then God started working in my heart, which God certainly can do that as he's sovereign. And all along, I mean, Montrose is probably like 35 minutes right from Clark Summit. And uh, all along, my older brother was already a student at Baptist Bible College. And I, I was that kid that grew up, said, I'm never going to go to a Christian college. I'm certainly not going to go to a Bible college. God doesn't want me in ministry. I want to be a writer, and I want to major in communications or journalism. And I had my life all planned out. I can go to college for free. I can major in journalism. I can become a writer. I can play basketball. And uh, that's how, by, by, that, by that time, I was 6'6". And uh, that's how I figured life would be. One evening, it was a Friday night, I was going to sign the thing to go to a different college on Saturday morning. I was supposed to sign the scholarship the next morning. The basketball coach, whose name was Jim Huckabee from Baptist Bible College, now Clark Summit University, called me on the phone, and he didn't talk about the college. He didn't talk about majors. He didn't talk about money. He didn't talk about all that. He talked about the will of God. He, uh, it was a late-night conversation. He ended the conversation. He said, Mel, what, I want to ask you one question. And he said, Mel, what does God want you to do? And I hung up, and I went upstairs, and I, I literally took my Bible. I hadn't. I hadn't been a student of the Word, even though I was a Sunday school kid and all. I started flipping through my Bible. I started looking up God's will verses for my life. And that was the thing that started the journey for me to even think about going to a Christian college and, and even a Bible college. And so God worked it out. The next year I went to BBC, Clark Summit University now. And it was while I was there that God started to work in my heart. And actually, I, I was playing on the basketball team there and actually through an injury, my freshman year, I separated my shoulder, and uh, I was in the hospital room at Mercy Ho Old Mercy Hospital in downtown Scranton. I've told you this part of the story already. My pastor from Bridgewater in Montrose, when, it, when you go to a Christian college, you have to have a pastor's reference, right? I mean, I filled out a bazillion of them. You know, you have to have a pastor's reference. It was paper in those days. You know what my pastor wrote on my reference for, for BBC, for Clark Summit University? He wrote in big letters. It had one of these things, and it had all these lines on there, character and, you know, love the Lord, act, active in church and all that. My pastor wrote in big letters, Mel doesn't belong at Bible college because I wasn't living for God, and sent it in. And so in my file is this letter saying Mel doesn't belong at Bible college. Somebody ultimately from admissions at the school called me on the phone, and I am not kidding you, literally said this, Mel, is there anyone who would say nice things about you? <laughs> and they let me get somebody else to do the pastor reference, and I found somebody. I still am paying them. Um, <laughs> no, just, but I found, I found, and so while I was a student there, uh, Peggy and I met, but God started working in my heart, and it was while I was in the hospital room at, uh, at Mercy, my pastor, the guy that wrote that, Mel doesn't belong in Bible college, 
came down to the hospital. I had my arm in a sling, separated my shoulder. This hand still had the IV in. And I'm in the hospital bed. And you know how the hospitals have that table that kind of swings around for your food and stuff? On that table was my Bible. But my arms were t- like literally tied down. And so I could and the and here's the here's the verse. I've told you this part of the story before. The verse that my pastor shared with me was from Hebrews 12 that says the Lord loves those he chastens. That was the verse. And he prayed, I think it's in the pastor's rule book that they have to do that. He prayed and left. And I'm there all alone in Mercy Hospital. The Lord loves those he chastens. The Lord loves those he chastens. And it hit me, for God so loved the world, John 3:16 that God loved me enough to have something better for me to do than this. And God allowed me to finish out basketball. That was it. But that started the journey. The next year, I had the opportunity to travel and do ministry things and started talking to some mentors, some advisors in my life. And everybody I talked to talked to me about, Mel, you need to work with with young people. You need to work with young people. And it was through that I actually started a study on my own, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, pastoral epistles, about how God used a young man in ministry, and God used that, giving me ministry experience, especially with young people, to call me into the ministry. And so then after I uh, uh, graduated, Peggy and I got married that summer and started my ministry as a youth pastor uh, in Michigan, and we've served there for several years. In fact, I don't know if I've ever said this part of the story, my, the senior pastor that I worked with in Michigan passed away of leukemia while we were there. I had to officiate my pastor's funeral he was a very popular senior pastor the 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 funeral was on a friday our church was packed i was scheduled to preach sunday after the pastor died that morning i was so nervous about what to say what what can i possibly say to comfort the church that had just lost by leukemia a very popular senior pastor And that morning, the chairman of the deacons asked if he could make an announcement. This is the Sunday after the funeral. And the chairman, I mean, certainly make an announcement. He gets up front and he said, the deacons voted this weekend, and we think that Mel should be the interim pastor of the church. And he actually had the church vote on me being the interim pastor of the church without even asking me. I'm looking at Peggy like, what just happened? And so I get up front, and I'm like, Thank you. Uh, now turn in your Bibles and had, had to preach. And so that was what God used in my life. And I thank God for the call. My ministry has been at two different Bible colleges, has been doing different things. But I love the opportunity to do what God has called me to do. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, the, the, what, the responsibility, the motivation, the desires of what, how God works in someone's heart. And, and so, as, yes, Pastor Todd talked about sharing our testimony. That's the part of it that I wanted to share is how I knew I came to the place where I want to do what God has for me, not what I want to do with my life. Does that make sense? Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? My story isn't all too different than Pastor Mel's. I grew up born again. I was saved when I believed I was around age five, and I trusted in Jesus Christ. And I lived a pretty typical ministry Christian kids life. I went to church all the time. I went to youth group. I was faithful and things like that. I was a pretty good kid. I don't think I was pretty rebellious whatsoever, but um, I was in youth group and I wasn't really one of those spiritual leaders in youth group. Although I was a leader, I was one of those people that people looked to. But I remember my uh, youth pastor came to me one day and said, Todd, I think it's, I think it's time that you step up. You know, the graduating class had just graduated. I was going to become a senior. And he said, I think it's time that you step up and become a spiritual leader in this youth group. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, well, so what's that going to involve? And he, so he started talking to me about what it means to be a spiritual leader. And so the very next uh, time we had youth group, uh, in between whatever they were doing, I raised my hand and said I wanted to make an announcement. And I, he said, Todd, stand up and say what you need to say. And I said, yeah, I, I haven't been doing a great job at this, but from now on I want to be more of a spiritual leader in this youth group. And everybody clapped. And it was this really great scene. Uh, the only problem is, is I had no intention of changing. I had no intention of doing anything different. I didn't even know what he meant by that. But I felt compelled to say something and put myself out there as a spiritual leader. So life just kind of went on. And uh, around college years, I went to Baptist Bible College as well. And around ages 18 to 22, 
I think I started to get an idea for what I wanted to do with my life. It was very similar to Pastor Mel's, and I started to look at things that I was interested in and things that I wanted to do. And the more I focused on my own dreams and desires, the less I focused on Christ. And it's ironic that that happened at a Bible college, but I started to, to give myself more to my dreams and my wishes and my desires. And even after college, I drifted and drifted and drifted from the Lord. Now, I'm not sure there were a lot of red flags in my life. If you would have looked at me, I still went to church. I still uh, was kind and tenderhearted and person like that. But in my private time, I was living in sin. And not a lot of people knew what I was doing with my time, but one person knew. God knew. And I got to about age 25, and the, the process of drifting just kept going on and on and on. And I still called myself a Christian. I still believed I was headed to heaven, but I was not following the Lord whatsoever. So about age 25, it kind of came to a crux. And I felt compelled to get back into Scripture. It had been a while in my life. And I felt compelled to get back into Scripture. So the book that I opened that day was the book of Revelation. <laughs> I have no idea why I turned to Revelation apart from the Spirit of God directing me towards that book because Revelation is not an easy book. It is not one of those books that's going to give you flowery language and encourage you in your lifestyle. I looked at the book of Revelation and everything stopped. And God placed me in front of himself and said, Todd, what are you doing? Where are you today? How did you get here? And through a, a several studies and several weeks in that book, I started to realize that I was a fraud, a hypocrite. I was, a, I was telling people and putting myself out there as a Christian, but in my day-to-day -day walk, I had no desire to follow the Lord. And God sort of had to use a scare tactic in my life at that time through the book of Revelation. And he said, Todd, I have two choices. I can let you continue on the path you're in now, and you can get wherever this kind of lifestyle takes you. Or I can scare you. I can show you what the end would look like in a very profound and powerful way, and I can do my very best to wake you up. And that's exactly what he decided to do. Now, I was terrified. When I started looking at Revelation and started to realize my lifestyle, I actually thought... God was going to judge me. It was this time. Maybe I was going to die early. Maybe I was going to have a, be in a car accident or something like that. And God was going to take my life. And this was going to be the end. But that's not how our God works, is it? God is the God of second chances. And I'm thankful for that. Because God said, Todd, wake up. Wake up. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, you need to turn around because you're going the wrong way. And I knew that I was. And so, long story short, I actually said to God, I'm ready. It's time. In fact, it's past time that I give my life over to you entirely. And so in a manner of speaking, I gave God a blank check that day and said, God, I'm done wasting my time here on this earth. Whatever you want, I will follow. If that means another country, if that means I leave my family, if that means I do something I really have no desire to do, I would rather do that than stay here wasting my life. And I meant it. And so long story short, a year or two later, God led me to Michigan to go into campus college ministry and help lead the exact type of person that I just was only a couple years ago. And so 10 years later, I'm still doing it, along with being a pastor here, still helping college and young adult students, especially ones who call themselves Christians, set their eyes on Jesus, look at the worth of following Christ, and look at the reward that awaits those who do. So that's a little bit of my story. You guys have heard bits and pieces of it, but I want you to get a little bit of a glimpse of who your pastors are and where God has brought us. And obviously, long story short, God brought both of us here. And it kind of looks like maybe some nepotism went on, right? Like Pastor Mel got me here, or maybe I got Pastor Mel here. Really, it was God doing both. And it's just unique that he brought us both to the same place to lead the same church. And I'm just thankful for it. And we give God all the glory for that. So Pastor Mel is now going to come up and speak to you about the exhortation to elders from verses 2 to 4. I, uh, again, by the magic of Microsoft, I changed the font in the text. And the part that I want to talk with you is the part that's in red. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, uh, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Uh, it is a very pointed, very explicit passage that is talking to elders. To Peter, who uh, puts himself in that category, but also with what was called apostolic authority, uh, is writing to uh, believers and he's writing about pastors or elders. I have always found it incredible. Uh, this is one of those things that on Pastor's Todd, Pastor Todd's list would be included, that the illustration that the Lord uses, that the Bible uses, of ministry is often that of a shepherd. That's amazing to me. In fact, uh, often in Scripture, Christ himself, in fact, this passage, we'll get to that in a minute, where Christ himself is referred to as the chief shepherd. I, I grew up in downtown Montrose. A lot of people uh, say they're from Montrose, but really they're from the suburbs. Uh, I, I'm not a farm kid. I worked on a farm a couple summers for my parents, friends, and all of that. And so I have never really been around sheep. But if you go in Clark Summit, some of you have been up there. If you drive north on Route 11 from Clark Summit, you'll go through this little town. If you drive straight north, it goes up toward New Melford and up toward Halstead. But there's this little, little town on the way up that road. The town is called Hop, H-O-P, Bottom, right? You know where it is, right? Some of you know that. There's a sign in Hop Bottom that says, Welcome to Hop Bottom, formerly Foster. I have always wondered my entire life. The town was called Foster, and they changed it to Hop Bottom. I'm not sure why, but Hop Bottom. Right outside of Hop Bottom is this little sheep farm that is literally called Sheepy Hollow. Sheepy Hollow. One day, on my way up to where my, when my parents were still alive, I just stopped alongside a road, and I watched sheep. And I, just, just for a few moments that day, and, and I'm not sure what they do, the stories of David watching sheep, the stories of the... Uh, the shepherds when Christ was born watching sheep. and But that's the illustration, and that's the illustration that God uses. One of the things that I want, what I want to do is, is carve out three uh, characteristics of pastors. And, and it is interesting to me that God uses that word shepherd. But, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. But in the language, and I'm not going to go over that, and we've read that a couple times already. Number one is pastors are responsible. One of the things that you can get from Scripture, in fact, um, Dan read from Titus, and I talked with you about First and Second Timothy. Those books are called the pastoral epistles in Scripture. One of the things that you will get from reading about pastors, from reading about shepherds in the Bible, is that pastors have an incredible, and feel, honestly, folks, an incredible level of responsibility. Look at the language that's here. Shepherd the flock. Uh, you, you know the Bible stories about responsibility that's there. The term is exercising oversight. The, uh, the shepherd had that to literally to look over the flock and also to protect the sheep are in your charge. Some of them were owners of sheep. Some of them were hired hands, but they were responsible. This is a key passage in the Bible. It really is, folks, on the responsibilities of pastors. And this passage talks about the three main categories in the Bible of responsibility for pastors. And, and all three in this passage, all three of these terms are used. Pastor Todd talked with you about that. A term that is often used in Scripture for pastors is the word elder. Elder can mean it's the same word, old, older. It can also mean an official capacity to lead like it's in the Bible. You can read about that in verses like 1 Timothy 5, 17 and uh, Titus 1, 5 and other places. The idea is mature and experienced. And the Bible says don't call a novice to be your pastor because those things are important. There's a level of maturity there. And this is a, an official capacity. The word shepherd is used. We talked a lot about that. You know, I mean, I'm not a shepherd. I mean, I'm not physically ever been around sheep other than my little day at Sheepy Hollow. But that's tending. It implies care and feeding. In Ephesians chapter 4, it calls the term, 
It calls pastors, and it uses a compound word, pastor-teacher. That Pastor Todd has that main responsibility here, to feed the flock, to be fed from the Word of God. That's what pastors do. And then also protect. If you were to look up in the Bible, in a Bible study book like an Unger's Bible handbook or an Unger's Bible dictionary, some of you have those, there's often a picture of a sheep, many times, Shepherds were out in the countryside in Palestine, but they often kept sheep in this pen that was uh, basically three, four walls with a little uh, opening, no door. And the shepherd would be there in the door, and literally that's where he would sleep. He'd protect the sheep, and the story about how the 99 were fine and the one was lost, the pastor has that responsibility to protect as well and to feed. And you can, you can, the, the illustration makes sense, right? That, that's, what, that's what a shepherd does. And then this term, overseers, as well. This is also a term in the Bible that speaks of an official capacity. And it does have to do with authority, but also the main ideas of the word um, uh, overseer implies, uh, implies responsibility and accountability. And, and if you look at verses like Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13 talks about that pastors, that elders are responsible for people's souls in the church. Folks, that is a heavy responsibility. And one of the things that, honestly, I've been around a long time. I've been doing this a long time. One of the things that just breaks the heart of a pastor is when a sheep uh, walks away from God and doesn't go on for God. And that's a, that's a heavy responsibility. That word also applies. Pastors have a level, and need to have, folks, a level of accountability, too. There's been some stories in the news the last couple of months about pastors at megachurches that got full of themselves, that got proud. And the Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The Bible says take heed when you're proud lest you, lest you fall. And, and some of those have gone through that. It's been in the news about pastors that have gotten full of themselves. And one of the things you can tell if that happens is there's no, there's no accountability. Accountability is, is basically guardrails. You go on the highway, right? The guardrails keep you in the road. And uh, up at our house in Clark Summit where we live, our driveway is really, really steep. When we, we built our house a few years ago. And I mean, you could do Olympic downhill skiing on my driveway. You could. It's really steep. And uh, I, I, true story, we, were, we, we finished our houses and some of our neighbors built their houses at the same time. The township where we live came in across the street from my driveway. There's a ravine that goes down into a little stream that's there. And uh, after we built our house, the township came in and put guardrails right across the street from our house. I don't think it's because they saw Peggy Drive. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think is what they did, but they put guardrails. Guardrails are for accountability. They keep you from going over the edge, and that is a very good thing. The Bible talks about accountability and responsibility, and believe me, your pastors feel that, and that's something that the Bible talks about a lot. Pastors, this text also talks about pastors need to be motivated. Every pastor that I know that's worth his salt, feels that level of, 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 of motivation, that God wants me to do this. Look at the language that I carved out in this passage. Willingly, in fact, if you would look back in pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 3, it says if a man desires the office of a bishop, the office of an overseer, that desire, folks, is God-given, that God, can't, God doesn't take it away. It's that desire that's in your heart that this is a God thing, that this is something that I want to do for eternity, and there's that highly motivated, look at the phrase that's in the middle, that God would have you to do this. And believe me, folks, that's what you want is for pastors to feel that, that this is what God has for me to do. And also that word eagerly, that, that's a great word. Look it up sometime. The word implies waiting for something exciting. That word eagerly is, 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 like, is I can't wait. As, as this is great. And pastors have that level of, of motivation that God put a burden, burden on your heart to do that. You ever, 
Did you ever know somebody that's highly motivated, that just has a passion, that just loves to do that? That's what ought to be, the Bible says, in a pastor's life. And I love that about my kids. That God put that burden on their heart. That it's a God thing. Believe me. I'm okay. That's not a Mel and Peggy thing. It's a God thing that God puts that in their heart. And that's a very good thing, right? That's a God thing. Number three, this passage is clear that pastors are to be examples. Among you, I'll come back and talk about that in a minute, not for shameful gain, not domineering, but being examples. One of the things that I, I love about this passage is that idea that here, here in the passage is uh, that, that little phrase, among you. Which is what you want. We, one of the reasons, I think, that we shared our testimonies today is not, believe me, it's not that our life story is going to be a major motion picture someday. But it's because of that phrase, among you. What you want from a pastor is someone who's not living off in a monastery, protected from life, protected from culture. That is not God's picture of a pastor. What you want is someone who is among you, someone who's with you, someone that you're close enough to them that you can see their life. And that's what God says the responsibility for pastor, being an example. And the way that that can happen is if they're close enough. And uh, so in this passage, very bluntly to pastors, that the, these three things, yeah, God is talking to Pastor Todd and me about these things. It's, it's for us. And I love how God uh, has, has formulated, put that together here in his word for, for pastors and the responsibility for pastors. Amen. If you'll take your eyes now, we're going to look at verses 5 to 7. And I'm just going to read it one more time. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now we have to move a little quickly through these verses because the only thing worse than one long-winded preacher named Walker is two long-winded preachers named Walker, but we're going to do our best here. Verses 5 to 7, he starts out by saying, likewise, likewise, in the same manner, in a similar fashion, to what I just told the elders, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So in order for pastors to do their job properly, they have to listen to the instruction. But also for church members to do their jobs properly, they have to listen to the instruction. And so Peter is going to give instruction to all of us. All of us now are included in this instruction. And he says, you who are under your elders, be subject to them. We all have very different roles in church. We do. Some have public roles. Some have private roles. Some have those under the spotlight. Some have those in secret. But we all have very important roles in this church. And every single role is crucial to the success of the church. We all have to be doing our roles properly. This church is not going to succeed. So Peter says, you who are younger. And again, that could be taken literally. It could literally mean people who are young in age, listen to those who are advanced in age. But I think the thing Peter has in mind is really those who are less mature, those who are younger in the faith, be subject to your elders. God has selected the leaders of not only Wyoming Valley Church, but all of his churches. God has selected the leaders. Pastor Mel and I did not put ourselves in this position. We were chosen by God and chosen by the leaders to lead this church. So God has selected the leaders he wants for his church. And pastors do not select themselves. They are chosen by God. And that's a good thing because that means God has both called and qualified the men that he calls and chooses to do his work. So as we have seen, elders have been called and qualified by God to shepherd the church. But pastors, and you will learn this if you haven't learned this already, pastors are not perfect people by any means. Pastors are not more valuable than other church members either. I hope you can see that in the text. This is not saying elders and pastors are more important. They're not. We are just called to a different role. And hasn't been Peter saying that all along through the book of 1 Peter when he's talking about servants and masters, when he's talking about wives and husbands. This is not talking about value. 
It's talking about a role. And so pastors are called to a higher role, but they are not more valuable. They simply have been granted a position of higher responsibility. And God designed it that we are the ones to lead the church and everyone else is to follow the lead of the pastor. Because, as Pastor Mel alluded to, pastors are actually held more accountable than others to God. And that's a very weighty thing to know. That if this church goes in a bad direction, God will come to us and say, why is that? What have you been telling them? What have you been leading them in? So we are held more accountable for the direction of God's church. And that's a very weighty thing to know. But he wants everyone else to subject themselves to the elders. If, or if this church is going to go properly, it's going to go because Pastor Mel and I lead properly and because everyone else submits properly. And if we all do our jobs properly, this church is going to be strong. It's going to have longevity. It's going to be a beacon of light in this community. But we all have to do our jobs properly. So he says, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Follow them. Listen to their instruction. Their instruction, Lord willing, is not an opinion. It is something that God is sharing with them so that they can share it with their people. The next thing he says is, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Anytime we talk about submission, we're speaking of a very humble, precarious position to be in, aren't we? It's always a very awkward thing to talk about submission because it sounds like when you submit, you're losing your rights. Or that, again, maybe you're less valuable than others. But we have to shake off that thinking because that is not what God has in mind. He simply has a proper order of things. The elders are supposed to lead the pastors are supposed to lead and everyone else is to follow their direction. And again, everyone is held to the scriptures. Everyone is held to the chief shepherd, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is not saying that we are of less value when we submit or we are losing our rights when we submit. He is speaking about the system that God has set up. When we act according to God's system, it works. And when we don't, it fails. It's that simple. If we operate improperly as a church, we cannot succeed. We are simply spinning our tires. So we need to listen to what God says today. We need to put all pride aside and we need to clothe ourselves with humility. Every follower of Christ has to get, with it, get acquainted with this idea of humility because humility is God's plan for success in the church. Humility. You could say it begins and ends with humility. If God's church is going to succeed, it's because the pastors are humble. It's because the church people are humble. Humility is God's secret to success. And Pastor Mel just mentioned it. There are pastors, when pride gets into their heart, they crumble. They cannot lead properly. They cannot lead the church properly. When pride gets into the heart and the mind of anyone, they are not going to succeed. So we have to be able to see this secret and know this secret that it starts and it ends with humility. Peter tells us to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. In other words, drape yourselves in humility, every ounce of you. Pride has no place in the Christ follower. I mean, think about it. Prideful pastors? How can that work? It cannot work. We have been selected and called and qualified and gifted by God to do this job. Where is the pride? Everything was a gift. Everything has been given to Pastor Mel and myself to lead this church. It was nothing we did on our own. So where is the pride? Prideful Christians? How does that work? We owe everything to God, don't we? Don't you owe your very breath, both physically and spiritually, to God? Weren't we all sinners by nature? Rebels? and redeemed by the blood of Christ, how can prideful and Christian go together? It can't, because we owe everything to God. We are servants who have been forgiven and redeemed. In other words, it's humility or bust. If there's no humility, this church will not and cannot succeed. So pride has no place in the Christian. It has to be put away completely. 
And it's interesting in the word of God, the way God has set it up, is that if you want to go up in the kingdom of God, if you want to be exalted in the kingdom of God, the direction to going up is by placing yourself low. Going down is the way to going up in the Christian life. If you want to be high in the kingdom of God, if you want God to exalt you, then you will make yourself a willing servant of him. And when God sees that you are a willing servant of him, he says, at the proper time, I will exalt you. When it's proper to do so, when it's time to do so, I will notice my servants, I will see their humility, and I will exalt them. And that when God exalts you, it's exponentially better than any sort of exaltation you could find here on the earth. So think about this question. Are you serving in Christ's church yet? Have you made yourself a willing servant of Christ's church? We have areas. We have areas. If you're not yet serving in Christ's church, we can help you with that. Because the way to exaltation is through humility, and it is through servanthood. And in case we need motivation, listen to what he says. It says that God opposes the proud. Imagine that. God standing in the way of our success because we're prideful. We want to go a certain direction. We're going to go the way we think is best, but there's pride. God says, I will oppose you. I will stand in front of you so that you cannot find success by doing it your own way. But if you flip that on the other side, it says, on the contrary, when God sees humility in his people, he sends them extra grace so that they can do their jobs and their role properly. Again, the secret is humility. If your pastors are going to succeed, if this entire church is going to succeed, pray for humility. That is the way to get it done. The last thing he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he will exalt you. See, God is going to have his way. He's going to accomplish his will either with his people or in spite of his people. God's will is not going to be thwarted. So when we place ourselves under God and his system, we understand that his authority and his plan is best. And he says, place yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Doesn't that sound a little terrifying? If I place myself under the mighty hand of God, I could get crushed. But you have to trust God's goodness. He's saying, if you place yourself under my mighty hand, on the contrary, I will not crush you. I will exalt you. I will see your willingness to submit and to serve, and I will exalt you. And don't we want exaltation in the proper fashion? We do. And it's by placing ourselves under God's mighty hand. When we humble ourselves, it proves that we trust God's system. We don't have to fight for our rights. I don't have to put myself on a pedestal. I simply trust God's system. And God will exalt me at the proper time. And he will exalt you at the proper time. And the last thing he says is this really profound thing. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I'm thankful for that verse. I'm thankful for that part there. Because when you place yourself entirely into God's hands and God's plan, you don't get to fight for your rights. And when you don't get to fight for your rights, it could bring about earthly troubles and sufferings right? If you don't get your way and you don't get to fight for your own things, you will find less. You will find worse situations. And that's why he says, cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. When you trust in God's system and do it God's way, you can also take all of your worries and all of your anxieties and say, God, they're yours. I need you every hour. And that is a part of trusting God. That is a part of trusting God. We cannot submit to God if we seek to control our own lives, can we? We have to trust him. So he wants our submission and he wants our troubles. And if we don't give God both our submission and our troubles, we're not going to succeed. But handing our troubles over to God, although it seems like a place of vulnerability, it's actually the greatest place of strength. Because when God handles things, it is strong. When God cares for your needs and your anxieties, they are taken care of. So although it seems like a place of vulnerability, placing yourself under the mighty hand of God is the strongest place to be. And this is this idea of fighting as victors, as Peter's brought up so many times. When we submit to God and hand our troubles and worries over to God, we fight as victors. And God guarantees success. 
But if we refuse to go with God's system, we do it our own way. We get a haughty head and we get pride in our hearts and we're going to do it our way. We want to fill these church. Let's do it our own way. Let's, let's do it the way the world would do it. God says, I will oppose you. And if God opposes us, nothing good will be accomplished. So we have a couple applications and these are going to be very quick. Application number one, based on this lesson, please pray for your pastors. If you're not already, please pray for us. We love our jobs and we love all of you, and that is earnest. But we have been called to a very high responsibility. The devil wants to take down pastors the most because if he takes down the pastors, the entire structure crumbles. So if he can get to Pastor Mel and myself through pride, the entire church will not succeed. So please pray for your pastors so that we can emulate the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that he shepherds us. And application number two is very simple as well. Trust God's system. Trust it. Those he has placed over you, Pastor Mel and myself, are here for your benefit. For your benefit. We are placed here for your benefit. And let all of us humble ourselves and embrace our roles for the sake of growth and maturity in the church so that each of us can become Christ-like and mature and eternally exalted by our God. Isn't that a good thing? So let's all do it God's way. Let's all do it God's way. Let's remember that Jesus is worthy to have a church that represents him properly, isn't he? Amen. Isn't he worthy to have a church that represents him properly? Let us all strive to build a proper church for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. Thank you for the exhortation both to pastors and to the general church. Father, we know that we need your help. We cannot do this church. We cannot lead this church properly unless you enable us to do so. And I ask that you would give us the grace to do so. Father, help us all to trust your system, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, in the proper way, you will exalt us and you will fight for us. God, we want it your way. We want it for your glory. And we want it because of Jesus and what he's done for us. We thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to study this today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.